Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by Pastor Kevin Kelts. Church a little bit in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and uh, then the 2000s and the 2010s. And so I've seen it. I've seen it come a, a long, a long way, and uh, I remember we used just, just used to have song service. So you get up there and say, oh, everybody stand, we're going to have song service. And so we sang from the hymnal, and uh, does anybody remember doing that? Am I the only one? Yeah. Sing from the hymnal, and, um, and that's what we would do. Um, and I would go to different churches, and, and it was always different. You know, some people had a piano, and some people had no instruments at all. And some people had um, like a, a set of drums, and that was like, man, kind of where I grew up, that was huge. Like somebody had that. It was like almost too rock and roll, maybe a little bit God, maybe a little bit devil, but we may be okay. We weren't sure. And, uh, and I remember when our church got a set of drums in it. And, and so just to kind of tell you guys a little bit where I'm from and kind of where I come from, it was just, uh, can anybody imagine that? Uh, going to church and, and thinking, man, uh, I may be at the wrong church because this church is too out there. They have a set of drums. But that, I mean, it was a huge thing in our church uh, and kind of the, the, the people that I grew up with. And, and um, I was thinking, Pastor Jared, you know, there was a time too where I really resisted worship. I resisted, I've always loved music. I'm a musician, but I resisted worship because it was, it was like this thing that I was admitting that my parents and grandparents were right. And I was just kind of hard-headed, you know, like, you know, you're supposed to do this, and you're supposed to worship this way. And I was like, mm-mm, you know, mm-mm. And, and I would even have my, I remember my grandmother, she would, in the middle of the service, she would get really, just touched by the Spirit. I mean, she'd be crying, and I'd be on the back row looking, trying not to make eye contact with the pastor, you know, especially not my grandma, and here she'd come back, and she'd go. She'd, she'd grab me, and she'd start crying, and she'd say, uh, and I was just so uncomfortable. I'm like, everybody can see this. <laughs> like, why are you doing this? And she'd be like, uh, today's your day. Today's your day that you raise your hands to the Lord for the first time. And I'm like going, mm-mm, I will not. That was like having the drums was huge and raising my hands. I never did that until I became an adult and got on my own because I just wasn't going to. But that, it was almost like I'm all in or all out. So when I finally did decide to experience a worship service or participate in the way that I saw other people participate where we would call those people really free, where they would raise their hands or kind of shout. And I went all in, man, and I was jumping and dancing, and man, I was, I was really getting into it. And, uh, and it was almost like, though, I was thinking, Pastor Jared, because of the mixture that was preached, I knew what was coming. I knew I was about to get you know, kicked around pretty hard by the preacher. So I would just get so, you know, pumped up, like, okay, you know, like, I got to feel really, really good because I'm about to get my teeth kicked in. And I know I'm going down to that altar again, and I'm going to get resaved again, you know, like, like last week. And, and so uh, just this morning, just the, there were some things I really felt, um, some of the lyrics that we were, we were singing just really touched my heart. 
Um, and uh, they really, I think there's some things that I, it made me think about too in context. Um, some of the words that we sing um, from like one of the songs we were talking about, uh, the dry bones. You know, I hear the sound. And for me, in context, you know, I grew up in church my whole life, and so I know the story of Ezekiel. And I know the word of the Lord coming to Ezekiel and the prophet speaking over. But, but just think of somebody that was never raised in church before, ever. And they were raised in a different culture, totally. And they visited for the first time and saw you just getting worked up about, I hear the sound, the dry bones. And they're like, what are, y'all people are crazy, you know? How does that look in context when you don't have context to that? Singing about dry bones and singing the bones like, are y'all, y'all kill people? Do y'all work in a cemetery? You know what? It, there's context is everything, right? And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to continue this series, uh, Irresistible. And I'm going to kind of just jump right off of the, the hills of what Pastor Jared preached last week. If you didn't hear that message please, 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 please go and listen to it. Go watch it on our Facebook page. In fact, if you're here this morning or watching on the, 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 uh, the cameras at home or the computer at home, go ahead and, and get on Facebook and check in today. We appreciate that. Um, but, but listen to that sermon. I mean, it's everything that we've been, been really sharing in this Irresistible series are the really stone, stepping stones that we went through on our journey over all of these years and, and just things that, that were uh, brought to us as, as truth and foundational and, and going through um, our own learning and our own experiences, our own journey, getting to a place where, of, of, there's lack of a better term, some some things that were constructed had to be deconstructed. They had to be t- torn down. And those things were, were sacred cows to us, man. They were so dear and near to our heart. And we're going to talk about one of those things. Pastor Jared really alluded to it last week when, when he was talking about many times um, what, what is taught in the Bible is, is what will make somebody leave the church or somebody that's not a believer not even want to have any church or with the church. A lot of times, it's it's those people that leave the church or or have never been in it and don't want to have anything to do with it. They leave or they don't have anything to do with it, not because of anything that has to do with Jesus. Remember, Pastor Jerry was talking about that last week. It's like everybody can get together and think about Jesus's life, and it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a non-believer. Everybody. You, we may not all agree that he's the son of God, but everybody will agree that he was a great man. And to some extent, we'll, we'll agree that we need more of his type of lifestyle in our earth today. And in and, 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 and that point that he's somebody that we could pattern our lives after if he was the son of God or if he wasn't. Now, I personally believe that he was God incarnate, and that's really important to me. But the point that Jared was, Pastor Jared was making is that um, a lot of people fall away from the church or don't want to have anything to do with it, not because of Jesus, because they're cool with Jesus. Like, Jesus is all right with me, Pastor. Yes, that's fine, but it's usually something that was taught from the Bible 
that was twisted, that was taken out of context, that was applied to them in a way that should have never been applied. Um, but and, and, and folks that walk dead of the New Testament, which, which is pretty much Jesus' story, it's usually something that has to do with the Old Testament. And, and so we're going to talk about that today. You know, Pastor Jared reminded us that Christianity can stand on its own two New Covenant, nail-scarred, resurrection, first-century feet. You see, our faith actually does better without Old Covenant support. And so when you think about Old Covenant, we're talking about the Bible today, and Pastor Jared talked about this, you would think that uh, the Old Covenant, everything consistent uh, or, or, or dealing with the Old Covenant is the Old Testament. And so the reason... That's why we're preaching about this series. The Old Covenant has been made, it, it, it's obsolete. We've talked about that. When Jesus came and he brought a new covenant through his death, burial, and resurrection, his resurrection signifies this is the starting of that new covenant. When that happens, it, it says that what he actually made, the Old Covenant, but we always need to remember that was never with us because none of us were ever Jews under the law. We never walked with Moses. That was never our heritage or who we were. But he made that covenant with those people in that time. He made it completely uh, abolished. He made it completely obsolete. I mean, think about this. When the first century church, it started, they weren't walking around and telling stories and leveraging the Jewish scripture. They weren't bringing around Old Testaments, right? Like we have New Testaments today. You can find them in the, in the hotels. They didn't have Old Testaments that they were dragging around. In fact, nobody had anything that was called the Bible at that time. They never leveraged those things. When, when reaching out to unbelievers, a Gentile world, they leveraged a more recent development. They, le- they leveraged an event. They leveraged the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you've watched a man be crucified, die, be put in a tomb, and then you eat breakfast with him after all that happens, it really changes your life, and you want to tell people about it. And guess what? Your faith doesn't have to be propped up with ancient props. Current events and eyewitness testimonies will suffice for you, man. That's why you believe so much. That's why you want to continue his teachings and his way and his kingdom so much. See, the Apostle Paul would certainly say amen to that, Pastor Kevin, because in his letter to non-Jewish believers in Corinth, he lists everything that should be considered an obstacle to the faith in Jesus. Now listen, in context, this is him writing to Non, non-Christian, non-believers, okay? In his day, he said this, letter to the, Christian, the Corinthians, not to the Americans living in 2021, but listen to this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And those were the two prominent cultures where they were at that time. And he says this, but we preach Jesus crucified. And listen to this, he says, a stumbling block. Jesus crucified was the stumbling block. At this time, uh, it was a stumbling block to Jews and it was a foolishness to Gentiles. Later in that letter, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says this For I have resolved, he's telling, he's writing a letter to these, these people. He says, I've resolved to know nothing while I was with you except that stumbling block. He says, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, 
Why was it just for Paul, Jesus Christ and him crucified? Because the church, because the church of Jesus Christ, we can stand on our on, on, on its own two new covenant, empty tomb, resurrection feet. Unlike Peter and Paul, though, his generation didn't have that advantage. Okay? Of people knowing the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus and it being in a book that was printed and living in a time where people are literate and people have access to it. It wasn't in that time. So what he was going around is he was just saying, listen, this is an event that changed our lives forever. We saw him die. Now he lived. Everything was over, and then everything was back on again, but to a degree that we never knew. We were willing to give our lives for it, and this is what I, I, was, I, was, I was set to be able to tell people. This is what I'm convinced of. And, and the thing is, it's become different now, and it's flipped in our generation. Because Jesus Christ and him crucified is not the stumbling stone that it used to be. In fact, what has happened and what we see, and Pastor Jared can give you from, from his life and his journey through this Christian walk, is the stumbling stone for a lot of people has become the Bible. It has become um, the, the Old Testament part of the Bible because people will take, you know, different things. You can go and look at a church history and, and, and you could actually take Scripture in the Old Testament that will, is very pro-slavery, which the slaves that was talking about at that time and in that context were not African-American people, but just because these people, uneducated people saw the word slave, and in our time, that's what it was meant to be. They took that, and they, in God's name, said that God was for these things and that we need to be for slavery. In this time, he was making it in context of, in his day, and it's African Americans, which is completely out of context. And if you and I were to be honest right now, all of you would be in complete agreements with me on that, right? You would believe that, wow, man, that's just taken completely out of context, and we, we, we should be able to now get to a place that we, as, as Christians then, should do it a better way. There has to be a better way. And what I'm going to talk about today is there has become a problem in our verbiage, in the way that we talk, in the way that we represent our foundation, in the way that we represent what we believe and why we believe. And, and what we have done, and y'all have heard Bishop Jamie say this before, is we have, we have taught people to become not good Christians, but good Biblians, where they believe that the third part of the Trinity is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Bible, right? And we've taken the Bible, and we've said that it's perfect, and you can't add anything to it. You can't take anything from it. It's God. It's it's infallible. It's inerrant. And we've used these words, and it's actually become a stumbling stone and a stumbling block for a lot of people. So we could start out, and, and to help this, to make this shift, I want you to just kind of be open-minded with me and listen to me. We could start to, when we talk about our Bible, we could start to use verbiage that would cause people not to be what actually is. And, and it's just a simple change. While the Old Testament includes all of the Old Covenant, and includes uh, uh, Abraham uh, and other things. It, there's a lot more in it. The two most accurate and least offensive 
of ways that I say we should switch it is just instead of calling it the Old Testament, call it either the Jewish scriptures, because it's a Jewish story. It comes from their history. I can't, I can't tell you uh, I had this, when I had this light bulb go off, but it was crazy to me that I, I was an adult and I was talking to some of my friends who are not from Texas. In fact, we were in Indiana. And I go, oh, you know about the Alamo. And he goes, what's the Alamo? And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Didn't you learn about it in Texas history? And he said, no, I'm from Indiana. I took Indiana history. And all of a sudden this, I don't know if that was ever just weird for you, but it was this aha moment that not everybody's a Texan. But I, that's how I thought. I, and I thought everybody is Texan and they, and so everybody in the whole United States, they have to learn about Texas because these are the most important things, right? What happened to us and Sam Houston and, and, and you know, we, this, is, this is huge. Well, guess what? They don't, they don't do that, right? And so what happens is we, we think everybody is like us. We think everybody's from America. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to first be right. And second, we've tried to create converts and to making everybody American. And then, you know, put Jesus on, on that too, right? But Jesus didn't come to Americans. He came first to the Jews, right? And so that's why we could call it the Jewish scripture because it's really real, their real history and what really happened to them. Now we could also call it the Hebrew Bible too, right? So just, just consider changing that and thinking that. Using either of these uh, designations will certainly remove an unnecessary obstacle for maybe, you didn't know this, but you have Jewish people that, that live around you, that work with you. And for you to start saying, even saying something is old, like the Old Testament referring to their Bible, their entire Bible as old, is all of a sudden they're cut off, man. They're not going to listen to you. They're already offended. And just for us to say, hey, the Jewish scriptures or uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, it would, it would really be a declaration of, of belief, uh, too. It would be a declaration moving in the right direction. You see, the content of the official Hebrew Bible is almost identical to what we call our Old Testament. The primary difference is just the arrangement, kind of the order of it. And we've talked about that before, that we could actually put ours in a, in a way better order because it's not in chronological order. And if you read it thinking that it is, you get very, very, very confused of who God is and what's going on in the whole story. But they also have different type of labeling on um, each, each different section of that, but it's pretty much exactly the same. So we, as New Testament uh, believers now, we know that this new covenant that was brought in by Jesus, it's initiated by Jesus. <clears throat> when we think about the new covenant and we think about the New Testament, we, we know that just the New Testament contains even more than just the new covenant. We, we understand that, right? And so here where we talk about the Old Testament, it contains the contents of God's covenant with Israel. The Old Covenant, it contains more of that as well. The term Bible, if you're taking notes, write that down. It just is a term that simply means books. 
Bible just means books. It, it, it's in a, it's a uh, getting a bunch of different books together. So why not be consistent and make a book divided into two parts, and we just call it the Hebrew books and the Christian books? And you say, man, it, it's just not that big of a deal. That's not the way that I was taught. And I'm just telling you, maybe be open-minded and just consider what I'm saying. You don't have to do this. But if you are really thinking about the next generation and other cultures around you and being able to reach out to them with the love of Jesus, these type of things are very, very important. In doing this, it would just be more clearer. It would be more accurate. You see, I'm not saying that we need to do away with the Old Testament because once you start saying some of the things that I'm saying today, that's the first you know, the, it, it's, you know, people are not balanced. You're either way over here on the, the left or way over here on the right, right? And so if you're way over here and then you to manipulate somebody because you don't like what they say, your answer to manipulate them is to go way over to the other side. So what are you saying? We just throw the whole Bible out? What are you saying? We don't need the Old Testament? I mean, where do you stop? I never, I never said that at all. We don't need to throw out the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures. It's very, very important, but calling it what it is is going to help people that are outside or have left start to understand the context of what's going on, and it's going to cause some of the confusion to go down. See, if renaming half of your Bible strikes you as being a little bit sacrilegious, which <clears throat> it did for me. This was a huge sacred cow for me. Um, so uh, you may go, oh, that's kind of crazy to say that. No, that was what I went through. For, to hear somebody say the things that I'm saying, um, it, I was very quick to manipulate people. Uh, first of all, that was just my controlling personality. And so, and so if I didn't know everything about what I was knowing, I'm not just come back to you really, really hard. And I would just say things like, well, you're a heretic and I'm not going to listen to you. And I would label some of the things that I'm saying today heretical back then. I really would. And I would just say, you know what, we'll just agree to disagree. And you probably would never hear from me again because I was afraid to think. I was afraid to think about anything that didn't agree with what I had already thought because I thought I already knew everything. And if I knew everything already, then why was my life over here not complete? And my life over here not complete? And my life over here not complete? The fact is, we just, I just didn't know everything, right? And none of us do. And so we have to be open-minded and have to keep on pushing forward. You see, if that straps you uh, a bit sacrilegious of renaming half your Bible, then have no fear because God didn't name the Old Testament the Old Testament. Think about that. And neither did Jesus. <clears throat> In fact, Jesus actually referred to the Jewish scriptures as the law and the prophets. So if you want to go old school and go back to the original, you know, uh, the original way, don't even call it the Jewish scripture or the uh, Hebrew Bible. Call it what Jesus said. Just say, uh, a reading from the law and the prophets, because that's what he would say. And in fact, Paul actually did the same. If you really want to follow his example, you could just uh, drop the Old Testament verbiage and, and stop referring to the first half of your Bible as the Old Testament, but just the law and the prophets. You see, nobody in the Bible used the term Old Testament. But in some way, I thought that they did because it was so ingrained into me 
this is what it is, and you don't think anything differently. They, these people never referred to, to, as the Old Testament as the Old Testament because that was just not ever a thought. At this point, these people, when it's written, it hasn't been put together. These group of books haven't been put together like they've ever been put together before as far as the New Testament. The Old Testament now is being put together. And listen to this, it had never been called the Bible yet because it just hasn't happened. The Apostle Paul used the term old only once in referring not to the law and the prophets, but he calls he just is talking about the covenant. And now we have a new covenant, but he never used the term as a designation for the entire collection of Jewish texts. Now, let me bring your attention to another part of this stumbling block, which we've talked about, is really the Bible for a lot of people, okay? Preachers, teachers, and evangelists say, this one phrase all the time, and I'm so guilty of it for years and years and years and years and years. We say, well, the Bible says, or we say, the Word of God tells us, rather than just making this simple, simple change, and it would save so much, so many people from leaving the church or, or not wanting to come to the church, just saying this, you know what the Apostle Paul wrote, or Jesus said. Because this is what we do. We as Christians have done this for so long. We have tried to leverage the authority of the Bible as the end-all, be-all for everybody. And, and, and listen, in my time, it has definitely changed a lot more. But when I was a kid and, and where I lived, this may not have been true in every part of America, but I thought everybody was Texans back then, right? And so... You could say the Bible says to me and anybody in our, in our town, even the people that we thought were the worst of the people from the other side of the tracks, the people with the drug addictions and the alcoholism and the people that were running around on their spouses and, and doing all this stuff, even those people, if you stood up to them and says, you know what, the Bible says, they would still take their hat off when the national anthem played had some type of respect for, well, I'm not going to cuss around the, the, the church or the, the, the pastor, and I'll always take my hat off when I go inside the church. Why? Because the Bible says there there's some people believe in heaven and hell and, and you know, all of these different things, and, and, and that, you know, they'd say, well, I, I may cuss a little, but I, I, still, I still go to church. You know, there's, it still meant something, right? I'm telling you, it's, it's switching. Think about this. We try to leverage the authority of the Bible and not the authority of the authors of the New Testament, or strangely enough, not the authority of Jesus himself. Why not say Jesus said, and since the Bible says, it's, it's caused a lot, of uh, a lot of people to be very confused. This approach has undermined and continues to undermine the credibility of our faith. Why? It's because supporting our faith with terms like, well, the Bible says. Well, I'm just telling you that the Bible says. Well, I know that the Bible says. It communicates the foundation of our faith is the Bible. And like Pastor Jared said last week, the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. It is not an inspired book. While the text include the New Testament, right? Our Christian Bible, and that plays an important role. It is very important in helping us understand what it means of how to follow Jesus. 
They're not the reasons why we follow. We don't believe because of a book. We believe because of the event that inspired the book. The event happened, and then people started writing because they were inspired, right? And that's what changed everything. That one event, that is it. See, the event, not the record event, is what birthed the church. To say it a different way, the Bible did not create Christianity. Come on, Christianity created the Bible. The Christian faith existed for decades. For decades. Decades. I'm talking about the year 50, and the year 100, and the year 150, and the year 200, and the year 250. The church is existing for decades before the Bible even exists before it even comes together. I mean, think about that. You see, Christian faith, as it was existing before the Bible ever came together, faith in Jesus existed before that, but not before the resurrection. Because people thought it was all over. Everybody quit. Everybody thought, man, well, he was just a great rabbi. And, and, And let me just tell you this. You may have not ever had this thought, but you can go and look in history. And history tells us that to those people, there were others that were saying, I am the Messiah. And they would have a type of following. And then they would be disappointed because it really wasn't the Messiah. That even happened after Jesus came. He lived. He died. He rose from the the grave. He went, met with some people, and then he left. Then there's there's a period before the the Great War, the Jewish-Roman War in 70 AD, there's a period of time of 40 years that's going on through there where there's lots of people that are raising up and saying, no, he's not here anymore, and he wasn't really, I am really the Son of God. And a lot of those different things are going on in that time. So it would have been easy to get confused back then. It's easy for people to get confused today. Let me ask you this. Which came first, the Gospel of John? or the collection of the writings that we now call the Bible, right? John was inspired, and he wrote what we call the gospel. And then later on, hundreds and hundreds of years later, they took that collection together and made it called the Bible. What came first, the book of Acts or the Bible? What came first, Paul's letter to those in Ephesus, or the Bible. Clearly, the document that makes up our New Testament preceded the New Testament. Consider this. When did John's gospel become inspired? When he wrote it? When he was inspired and he went to write it down? Or was it when it was recognized by a council and we say, this is the Word of God. This is the complete collection these 66 books, and as soon as they went, books, gavel down, we believe this, all of a sudden, it was finally inspired. I mean, which way? Was John's gospel inspired when he wrote it, or does it suddenly become uh, inspired 200 years when it's bound up with the rest of the New Testament documents and labeled the Bible? We all know the answer to the question, right? It was the first. If you believe John's gospel is scripture and that all scripture is God-breathed, which I do, okay, then you believe that John's gospel was inspired when it was written, not when it was copied, collected, 
and included. This is true of all the New Testament documents. So what's my point? This is my point, okay? My point is that inspired Scripture, it predated what we refer to as the Bible by 200 plus years. So just think about that. Think about what I just said. Inspired Scripture predated what we call the Bible. When we want to tell people what the Bible says, and we want to quote, well, you know, the Bible says this, instead of quoting the people that actually wrote it. It's a simple, it's a simple change. It's important. Before <clears throat> you ask the question, is this important? Well, before the Internet, and I'm talking about years and years and years before, when people were illiterate and didn't have access to it, and we didn't live in the age of information, it wasn't that important. But now we live in that generation, right? We live in that generation where I didn't think it was going to happen, but I still start, I try to stay on the, the edge, the cutting edge of technology. But I find myself at times, I hate to say this, handing my phone to my kid and going, hey, can you fix this, right? And they already know how to do it. They already know how to Google anything at any time and anywhere. And when all of a sudden they start coming in context or into life with people who start going to them and saying, well, you said that the Bible says, yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, that's what my dad used to always tell me. That's what my pastor used to always tell me. Well, the Bible says, and they'll say, well, let me show you something because this is what my parents showed me. And they'll say, did you know that your Bible, it actually contradicts itself? And they'll start to pull out Scripture. And they'll say, well, right here, it says that men don't ever need to get divorces. And you'll say, that's right. The Bible does say that. And then it'll say, but right over here, it tells men how to get divorces. Why is it contradicting itself? Then they'll say, you know what, right over here, it says that to receive forgiveness for sins, you have to, it, we, that came from Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And you're like, that's right. The Bible says that. And then they'll go, but it also says over here in another part of your Bible that the forgiveness of sins only comes through the father. The, 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 the parent is responsible for their own sins. Or the forgiveness of sin only comes through childbirth. And you go, they go, that's very contradicting. Or they'll even say, like I talked about last week, this, this Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, and your Bible says that God speaks to him and says, you need to go down and tell everybody to prepare themselves. Then Moses comes down and says, this is exactly what God just told me. We need to prepare ourselves, and we need to abstain from sexual activity. And he's going to say, that contradicts. Because he never said, God never said to abstain. Which one is it? There's contradiction. And then they'll say this, if there's one thing wrong with the whole thing, then if it's all inspired and all has to be true and everything inside of it has to be infallible, there can't be any falseness in it and it can't contradict itself, then guess what? Your, your faith is a house of cards, 66 cards to be, to be exact. And if I can disprove one of them, the whole thing comes tumbling down, and then your kid is at school, at college, sitting there going, what was all this about anyway? 
because their foundation was the Bible. Does that make sense? And so just making just little, little, little statements, like changing it from the Old Testament to maybe the, the Law and the Prophets or the Hebrew Scripture, the Jewish Scripture, saying things like that. And if our kids understand that, they'll go, oh, wait, okay. So this, in context, you're reading something that was told to people under a different covenant, under the old covenant, and that was never with us. And so in context, I can see how you can think that that contradicts itself, but it, it really doesn't. They were speaking to these people at this time. Now they're speaking to these people at this time. And, and guess what? Even if I don't know how to explain that to you, my faith is not on an infallible book. My faith is on an event that I believe with all my heart did happen. God, incarnate, he came to the earth as a man. He had prophesied through his people that he would, their Messiah would come. He showed up as that Messiah. And when he came, he didn't look anything like they thought he was going to look. And in fact, he said things to them that they thought was heretical. In fact, they tried to kill him multiple, multiple times. He lived, he died, they thought it was over, and he rose from the dead and proved that he was who he said he was. I believe that that happened, and there are people like John, there are people like Mark and Peter and Paul, there are people who were there that witnessed these events, and they, they inspired them to write all these books, and they wrote these books down, and these books, they have, they have been taken through history for us to be able to read them, and it's not, though, that these books are perfect. It's that I believe in the event that inspired these books. Does that make sense to you guys? It really helps. I know I started having those type of thoughts in, in college. College was a big deal for me because I grew up in such a small town, um, small population, and everybody kind of, we all kind of looked the same, and we all kind of thought the same in a way. Um, we didn't think that we did, but it really was a lot of like, and, and then when I went to college, and I was, you know, there's 35,000 people here, and they all have different thoughts and come from different backgrounds, and all of a sudden, it started to hit me. Wow, everything's not like I thought it was. And, and I need to think about things. And then all of a sudden, I, I would, people would bring to me, uh, they weren't even attacking me, it would be other people, and I would be hearing the conversation, and I'd go, whoa, I don't know as a Christian how to defend what was just said there. And those people that are very against what I've always been taught to believe as a Christian are very well-trained to, <laughs> to argue what they're talking about. And I was just lost, and then I got, I got just real lost. I was just like, it just, I don't know if I even believe in any of this stuff because of things like that. And just simple, us just changing some simple verbiage and the simple way that we teach things, how many know it could really save a generation? Uh, it could save a group of people and bring a group of people that, um, that maybe have, have been gone for, for a while. So listen, while saying, uh, it, so we are accustomed to saying the Bible is inspired, it's more accurately maybe even to change this, to say that the authors of Scripture were inspired. To say that you really believe that Paul was inspired when he wrote what he wrote, when, when, 
any of the books, you know, you, that Paul was, was inspired. In, in fact, Peter, his, his, you, you can read this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, <clears throat> he wrote and said this, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, he said they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, so you know, these prophets, he believed, these humans were inspired to write what they wrote. You know, uh, Peter's take, that was Peter's take. Here's Paul's take. Paul said in 2 Timothy, his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he said, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, think about it, though. What Scripture is he referring to when he said that? Because the New Testament didn't exist at this time, right? Men were, were inspired to write? Absolutely. Do I believe that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We believe that the authors of the Scripture were inspired. Listen, <clears throat> clearly, individually inspired documents like Matthew, Luke, uh, Romans, for example, predated the collection and the publication of all these individually inspired documents. Eventually, church leaders recognized these particular documents as authoritative and included them in our New Testament along with the Jewish Scripture. So they already had the Jewish Scripture and said, listen, this is going to kind of stay, stay how it is, and we're going to add this new collection. It was the 4th century leader, Anathasius of Alexandria, who was first to compile the list of documents that would eventually be recognized and sanctioned by the church, and is what we know today as the official New Testament. This list first appeared in a letter that he wrote, and this was the date, 336 A.D. So think about that. For 336 years, there hasn't been a collection called the Bible. And the church is existing, and new converts are coming, and people are being saved, and people are going forward, and they're a part of the move, and it's starting to, to grow over the world, and they don't have a Bible. It's pretty amazing, right? But they did have, think about it, 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 it was crazy, because part, and I've said this before, but when they were putting, compiling this list together, um, like the Roman government finally says, if you can't beat them, join them type of thing. <laughs> we've, we've tried to get this Christian, we've, we've tried to take that fire and stomp it out, and it only just made it bigger. So we're going to hijack it. We're going to, our leader's going to convert over to it and say, you can't beat them, join them. Oh, we're all Christians now. And we're all going to be this certain way. And so they, they, he got together these, this group of people that were experts, people that, that the people of the way would trust, right? Along with some of his people. And they get it together. And then one of the, one of the ways, they, there was a lot of books. There was way more than 66 at that, that's at this council of Carthage, right? And so they started to ask questions. One of the questions they ask is, uh, what were books, what books were people willing to die for? Because in the Roman Empire at that time, it was illegal. You really couldn't be a Christian. They were trying to stomp it out. And, and so people would take parts of, like Paul's letter or par, parts of what we know as the Gospel of John, and they would write it down, they would copy it, and then they would let somebody else copy that. And that, would be, that was being passed and being preached from, that type of thing, right? Another thing that they asked is, who wrote it? 
And I've told you there were several books that were left out because they were part of the what they call the pseudepigraphal. It was people writing under pseudonyms. So they went, if we don't know exactly who wrote it, it can't be in this. So it somehow could be discredited. So they threw those out. But guess what? So do you believe today I have a beautiful wife? I have three daughters. Do you believe that God speaks to women today and has a personal relationship with women today and that they're just important as men and could and even could write an inspired book? I'm not talking about adding on to the Bible or anything. You think that they could write an inspired book that God could be able to get used to get his word across, change? Absolutely. Did that just happen, or do you think that God was doing that? Was God against women back when these books were being compiled? So do you think that women whose lives were changed back then, which they tried to keep them illiterate, but some of them could have found somebody to write down for them, this changed my life so much. You think like a Mary could have written something, wrote something down? Do you know that if they were, those women couldn't have anything being passed through in that time because women were so low back then. So they had to write under a pseudonym and they would make up a name and it was always a man's name. Well, once that got to the council and it was written under a pseudonym, it was immediately thrown out. So nothing that women wrote could be included into that. Just think about that. So we get down to our 66, right? And, and we have that uh, leading up to the draft in this important letter. And for decades following this letter, church leaders debated what to leave in and what to leave out. I kind of told you kind of how they did this. Uh, first, second, and third century believers took their cues oriented their faith around, and meticulously copied these documents long before they were ever put into a completed list and uh, designated the Bible and bound with gold on the edges. During the reign of the emperor uh, Diocletian in the late 3rd and 4th centuries, men and women were arrested some places. They were executed for possessing portions of what would later become our New Testament. Clearly, these documents were considered sacred before they were collected and published, right? So why is that important? Why, why do we need to think about that? In light of the post-Christian context of which we live, it's time for us to stop appealing to the authority of a book and get back to talking about these people that were, they were inspired, right? That just makes sense to me, that they were there. Listen, listen, why am I quoting Paul? Because he was there, right? Why? Why am I quoting Peter? It's because he was there. He was there in this time. And so when we do that in the information age, that habit uh, unnecessarily undermines the credibility of our faith because some people are just going to say, oh, will you say you believe that because of the Bible? And the Bible says that? Well, I can discredit your Bible so I don't believe anything that you just said. Does that make sense? just trying to help out a little bit. As 21st century New Covenant Jesus followers, we must break the habit of saying the Bible says and start saying something more accurate like Jesus taught or Paul wrote or Peter declares and or according to the Apostle John who knew Jesus personally and walked with him. And if he said it, I believe it. 
It changed his life. It changed my life. This approach immediately reduces resistance among post-Christians, so people that have left the church, and with non-Christians, and Christians who are struggling then to maintain faith because they've finally seen that there's some discrepancy in this collection of books. Let's be honest, guys. The problem with the Bible says is this. It's not what the Bible says. It's what else the Bible says. Because when you quote, the Bible says, it's always something that you agree with, right? So you're like, oh, well, the Bible says, you know, and you start quoting scripture about grace and forgiveness. And you're like, wow, and I know that the Bible says this. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is what else the Bible says, because that's what they're going to come back to you with. That's what their disbelief is on. See, the Bible says that there was worldwide flood. And they're going to say back to you, nuh-uh, because I have archaeology proof from archaeologists that say that there wasn't. And you're going to say, well, the Bible says that Israel immigrated from Egypt into ancient Canaan. And they're going to say, uh-uh, because I have historical proof that claims that they didn't. Listen, if there was, in fact, no global flood and no migration to Egypt, then all of a sudden you start to think the Bible isn't true. And if part of the Bible isn't true, then all of it's on true. And if the Bible is true, then like our faith, if it's not true, like our faith, the walls, like the walls of Jericho, it starts tumbling down, at least not as described in the Old Testament, as described in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. And if we can't trust what the Bible says about those things, can we trust what it says about anything else? I say yes. I say, yes, we can, and yes, we should. But most Christians don't know that because their faith is in a book, right? And have taught that it's in a book, and it's all in or all out. And so when you start seeing things that are kind of weird, you're like, well, then I'm all out. Since to uh, have done that. Listen, as it turns out, there is, in fact, evidence to, uh, there is, in fact, archaeological evidence to support the fact that there was floods. So don't get all crazy on me for a second, okay? And there is uh, historical evidence that the Hebrews had an exodus, okay? We have found that. That did happen. What happened in Jericho, you can go and it, it, there's archaeological evidence of this, okay? But listen, even if there wasn't, that would in no way undermine the reliability of the accounts of Jesus' life found in the documents comprised in the New Testament, right? You see, for too many Christians, their faith hangs by the thread of this all-or-nothing proposition. Why? Because of the way that the Bible was first explained to you, the way that it was first explained to me, pastors and teachers and Sunday school teachers, they told me, man, this is the way it is. And it's all in or it's all out, man. And if you are a bit perplexed that I'm convinced the entire Bible doesn't have to be true for a part of it to be true, then you're probably guilty of laying that oh-so-fragile foundation for the folks that look to you for leadership. And I'll probably prove you a little bit wrong right here. And you heard it earlier in some of the things that I said. You see, the Bible says that you're not supposed to wear clothes of mixed threads. So the shirt I'm wearing today has, you know, cotton and neoprene. 
and, and I've broken the law, and so I need to repent for this, right? Uh, there's parts that you can go and dig up from the Old Testament uh, law that's talking about you can't have tattoo marks. Well, Pastor Jared and my wife Lisa, who are people that I love, y'all need to repent this morning because the Bible says that you can't have tattoo marks on your body. Now, y'all would come back to me very quickly with, I was never under the law. That was never for me. And in fact, the tattoo mark is a horrible translation. It means something different than what you think it believes, Pastor Kevin. But it's just truth. To, it's, I'm just proving to you that it's shock value when maybe a pastor gets up here and says some parts that contradict. It's a shock value. Like, oh my gosh, it was to me. And, and when I say things back to you, though, there's parts of it that you know that you don't believe to be true. Are you getting to my point? It's actually not that shocking because there's things, I've, there's things that I've come through and, I, and I've, you know, I've had conversations with my parents and um, they've been going through, you know, this journey of faith a lot longer than I have and they're in their 60s. And so I've, I've heard my mom say, well, you know, um, I'm so glad that, you know, we, we see these things and like talking about the old covenant being completely now obsolete in the new covenant here. And she, and she says, because there were so many things in the Hebrew scripture that didn't make sense to me, is what she would say. And she's like, you know, I never really agreed with that, but I just didn't want to talk about it. And so you'll find there's a lot of people that, that are that way. If it doesn't apply to you, as far as you just you came out of nowhere, man. You didn't have these religious strings put on you. Um, you're new to the faith. Hey, that's great. And I will tell you this, though. You're going to have to have grace for some of the people that you're walking through that are on your Facebook, that your Facebook friends at work, and they go to a different church than you, and all of a sudden they get on there, and they're just hammering people on the Bible says, and they're taking Scripture completely out of out of context, and they're making God, you know, look like a child abuser and a Zeus God. And, and you're going to have to have grace with them, not to get on there and just go, blah, 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 hate, 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 back at them. Uh, it's, it's good to know these things so that we can walk together in love. Amen? Amen. So, listen, our faith does not and is not um, secured on a book, or a collection of books. Amen? Our faith is rested on and foundation on an event. And what is that event? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's it. And then there's this. The Bible doesn't actually say anything. If you think about it, the Bible doesn't say anything. Right? I know you have apps now that you can push play, and it sounds like the Bible saying something to you, but the Bible was never a person. It's not the third person of the Trinity. The Bible has never actually said, you know who did? Moses did. So say that Moses said something, right? You know who did? Paul did and James did. You see, the, the Bible has never uttered a word, and we would do well to stop putting words in the Bible's mouth and blaming things on the Bible. Please think about what I just said. The world would be less confusing place if thoughtful Christians would just refrain from quoting the Bible and just would reference instead the extraordinary people 
that God chose as his spokespeople. Anyone who lost faith in Jesus because they lost faith in the Bible, listen, they lost their faith unnecessarily. It was a trap. It was, it was put in there, and we fell into the trap. When pastors and teachers and writers and parents say the Bible says they are setting up the next generation for a crisis of faith that won't do good. It won't go the way that you want it to. When we say something or somebody says something, and then because that that thing says something, therefore we ought to do something, we have set that something up that has said something. Constitution said the authority, right? We'll, we'll quote things you've heard. The, well, the Constitution says that's the authority, right? The principle says, the company handbook says, and we go after people and we say, well, the Bible says. And if you say that the Bible says, you are establishing the Bible, not, not listen, listen, not everything in the end, you are establishing the Bible and everything in the Bible as equally authoritative. And based on what we've already said, you don't believe that. You don't believe that it's all authoritative, that it's all God's word to everybody. You just don't, right? You believe in context, God said certain things, right? And in context, there are applicable to some people and not applicable to some people. So we don't need to make everything equally authoritative. And that is the trap that we put people up when we say the Bible says. It makes everything in it all authoritative when it's not. It's when we started. People are smart now. And they can look stuff on the internet. And they are thinking people. And they will leave the faith up the trap I mean, for no good reason. It's just because we set up, we set up the trap. I mean. Think about this, case in point, and uh, think about marriage. Just think about marriage. What does the Bible say about biblical marriage? If you just looked up biblical marriage, you could look up in certain places, and you could say, well, here the Bible says that biblical marriage in Solomon, his, his context, he was actually a leader of the Israelites, of the Hebrew nation, and he actually broadened the, the definition of marriage to not just multiple wives, but concubines, too. So, would it be safe to say that we don't all think that that's authoritative to us? Like, like we, we, as a people, don't agree in uh, polygamy and <laughs> extra whatever is on the sides, right? We don't believe that. But you could take that Solomon's death. It's actually in there. I mean, <laughs> David was a man. He was Solomon's dad. He was a man after God's own heart and also had concubines and multiple wives. I mean, it, it starts to get kind of confusing. It, you, you see, when it comes to most of the Old Testament, you would be against doing what the Bible says. So let's stop saying the Bible says and putting everything as equally authoritative, okay? I'm going to close with this. So, what I'm saying can be shocking to some people. Like I said, in my journey, it totally was. And, uh, like, light bulbs went off when I was like, oh, wait, hey. You know, when, when Paul is really ramping up, um, reaching out 
and taking the gospel to the world and the church is being birthed, there's no Bible. That was a huge, like, to me, like, whoa. And there was no America at the time. That's, like, crazy to me, right? So there's all these filters that I have to completely start to take off. And, and so he's ramping this thing up. And so I'm going to show you two very quickly places where um, he, he goes to reach these people that are already Jews, okay? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he brings them a message, and he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, he says, To win as many as possible. And he says this, he says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like those under the law, uh, as though to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became to those not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. He says this, and it's kind of like weird. It's like, so Paul, why are you switching back and forth? Why, why is it not a consistent message? And he says, I've become all things to all people so that by all means, I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I might share it in its blessing. So, so I'll, I'll take you this story. It's in Acts chapter 13, verse 23. And he, he, he goes to these Jews in Antioch and it's a hostile group of people. And P- Paul begins his message. So think in context, right? He's speaking to Jews who still believe that they're under the law, right? And so this was his message. He, he says, uh, from this man's descendant, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. So from the opening statement to them, he, he starts talking about Jesus, the one that they kind of put together, that they hated, you know, they crucified. And he brings that up. He dives right into the ideal of Jesus' arrest, his crucifixion, his burial. Right? And then he says this. He says to these men, these Jewish men, but God raised him from the dead. Man. And for many days he was seen by those who traveled with them from Galilee and Jerusalem. They are not his witnesses to our people. And then he starts connecting the dots. He says, I'll tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors. So speaking as a Jew, he says, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. But listen, now he's not he's not finished. So diving back into the Jewish scripture, speaking to them, Paul quotes from the second Psalm, then he makes application to Jesus and wraps it up by a warning from their prophet that they would all realize, Habakkuk, which I'm telling you, if you don't study this, you don't realize all these things that are going on because you didn't live back then. But this is what he's doing. This is who he's speaking to. He's speaking in terms that they'll understand. Right? And so he he has no no notes, no net. It's dizzy, but his point is unmistakably clear and no doubt offensive to all the people in the room. He says this, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins was proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Translation, Jesus is greater than Moses. That would have been shocking to them. That would have been an uproar to them. Okay? But he he 
he references the proof is in the pudding, man. It was prophesied that he would die, the Messiah. Whoever y'all think that is, he would die. And that three days later, he would raise again. And y'all know what happened. This is the only prophet that came and actually did that. He is the Messiah. And so they're kind of scared. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I know, you know, so-and-so who knows, who knew, who grew up with John. And John actually saw everything happen. And that came to me and came to me. And although I'm ticked off about it, I'm kind of like, I don't know, man. Like, this really could be. And although we still keep the temple going, they're saying that it doesn't mean anything. He just said that. Maybe I need to go for Jesus. Maybe I need to stop judging people and start stop seeing God as the way we've always seen him and start maybe believing in Jesus' teaching. That type of thing is going on, right? So, pause. The Jews were his primary audience there, right? Now, the thing is, Paul was not called really to the Jews. He was called to the Gentiles, to the people that never knew anything. They didn't, they, they didn't go and, and through the whole Jewish, and they, uh, they didn't take the, uh, uh, go and, and through the whole Jewish um, mindset of we're going to have, you know, the, the last supper. They didn't do all these things, right? They're just like, they're not, like a lot of people in America know that in, in a Christian culture who grew up in a little small town in West Texas. But how many know that there's people in another country over in, you know, the Middle East that were created by God who didn't have the same technology, didn't have the same access to them. And all they had ever been told was Allah is God. And, and it's just completely different of how, how it applies, how you would talk to me and how you would talk to them. So, so this is what he does. Check this. Now he's on a trip to the Gentiles. He's going through the Mediterranean, uh, upper-class Greeks. And, and, and now Luke documents this event. In Acts chapter 17, he's, he's waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas while wandering through the town, he couldn't help but notice there is this, this place that was full of idols. This eventually led to a heated debate with a group of uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were confounded by Paul's insistence that, ready for this, someone is risen from the dead. That's the point that he wanted to get to. They brought Paul to, the, to Areopagus and gave him an opportunity to make his cage, which, which, of course, he was more than happy to speak in front of all these Greeks, right? But his message in Athens is nothing like his message to the Jews in Antioch. Listen to this. He doesn't begin with the Jewish exodus, which, guess what? He knows that story because at one point they called him the king of the Jews. He was one of the most high-learned, um, educated Jews that there was. That's why he went so hard into converting Christians, these Jews that were converting to, to believing in Jesus. So he, he, he could have quoted from the book of Exodus and said, you all need to repent because our father Moses told us, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above the earth or beneath the waters below. He could have quoted that. That was a thing. 
That was in their scripture, right? But what did he do? He had a different approach. You see, his mission in life wasn't to make a point. His mission in life wasn't to be right. It was to make a difference. He was there, he said, to win some and save some. So he chooses not to quote from his scripture. He quoted one of their poets. He's like, it would kind of be today like um, one of hearing a song on the radio and me going, hey guys, have you heard this song on the radio about this dad who really loves his son? Like, yeah. Well, hey, you know what? There was a time in my life where that really became applicable to me. I never saw God like that. I always saw him as this person that was judgmental like a Zeus in the sky. And then now I really see him as a good, good father. And then I was just kind of like that. I could preach a message this morning about a song that y'all have all heard on the radio and liken it to what we believe to be true about God. And that would really touch you, right? So that's kind of what he does. And he says, hey, your, your poem, one of your great poets, says this. Like, in him we live and breathe and have our being. He's like, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we all know that song. Because, listen, if he would have gone, y'all know what Exodus says, what was recorded to our father Moses. They would have said, who the is Moses? We know about mythology. We know about Zeus. We know about Poseidon. We know about Hades. Who is this Moses that you talk of? Well, he knew uh, the he knew Jehovah, and Jehovah told him so that I could tell y'all that y'all are all going to burn because y'all have all these idols. That's not what he did at all. He said, hey, man, listen, I want to share with y'all. I heard y'all's, one of y'all's poets said this and kind of wants to bring home. He doesn't reference Scripture at all. He doesn't talk about any type of uh, things to do with the or God doesn't exist. I mean, it, it's crazy. Rather than telling the Athenians their God doesn't exist, he chose to talk about dedicated to an unknown God. And this would have been the ancient Athenian way, playing it safe. You know, they have all these gods that are just, and just in case we've missed one, there he is. At this point, Paul, he employs an unusual preaching technique. He summarizes the Genesis account of creation. Listen, without saying, he references Adam without saying Adam's name which would kind of be like seeker sensitive to some people. And then he references Genesis. Why didn't he do what he did in Antioch? Right? Why did he not give them chapter and verse? Why why so seeker sensitive for Paul and to be all all of a sudden? Was he afraid that that people might judge him? Paul? No, he he was not like that at all. Paul he was he was brave. He was out there, right? If Paul had referenced his Jewish source, his non-Jewish audience would have no idea what he was talking about. They would have saw him as judgmental. When your mission is to win some and save some, listen, you never give up 
influence unnecessarily. When your mission in life is to be right, maintaining influence isn't important at all. I bet you know there are parents that you talk to that wish that they could go back and change their parenting with a goal of maintaining their influence rather than simply being right all the time because I've seen this to be true. You can write your kids right outside the door. And guess what? We have done that in the church. We have being righted people right outside the doors of our churches. See, Paul, he does two more unusual things in this message. He tells the Athenians, he does tell them that they need to repent of their idolatry. But that's it. He doesn't reference all the other things they need to repent of. There was a long list of things that they needed to change, right? But the most unusual facet of his message to this elite group of Athenians who could become huge leaders of influence and do big things, right, is he never even mentioned Jesus' name. He never mentions Jesus. Paul chose not to name the name of Jesus in his evangelistic sermon to the Greeks in Athens. This is as close as he gets. He says this, for he, speaking of of the unknown God that he says is Jehovah, "for, for, for God has set the day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He kind of references Jesus there. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now he is referencing Jesus, but they don't know that. According to inspired Luke, that's how he concluded his message. He left the audience hanging on an edge. Was that a good idea? Well, listen to the rest of the story. In verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we would like to hear you again on this subject. What? Somebody has been raised from the dead? There's a part two to this message? We're interested. Tell us about this. At that, you can read in verse 33, Paul left the council, and it is recorded, Luke recorded this, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed what he was saying. Paul's approach to the Gentiles in Athens is significantly different to his approach to the Jews, right? I mean, completely, completely different. But listen, his central message is the same. God has done something amazing in the world for all humanity. He has punctuated and he has authenticated this great work that I believe in by raising somebody from the dead. It's amazing. We have eyewitness accounts, people that were there. Come if you want to know more about it, and I'll tell you. When preaching to non-Jewish audiences, audience who did not view the Jewish scripture as authoritative, because it didn't mean anything to them, right? Both Peter and Paul, they leveraged an event, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Then he put the spotlight where the spotlight needs to be on an event. So I'm just going to ask you guys to stand this morning. Part of the reason that the message has become resistible 
It's just part of the way that we've presented it. And it wasn't an original way that was presented. And I could see, like when we're speaking and talking this morning, looking around, there was a, there's a lot of light bulbs going off. Because I believe that, man, you guys really do uh, love, love Jesus. You love God with all your heart. And you want to uh, reach people. And you want to touch people with this message. What we're talking about this morning is going to help you for your foundation. It's going to actually help us from causing some more problems in the future. And all I ask is, is that in this, in this walk is just to consider unhitching your what you believe to be foundational from what we've talked about. A book which we need and is so awesome and so applicable in so many different ways this morning to an event. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I know on my my journey, there's been a a mindset that has changed where when you came into my life, I I was had a mentality to escape this earth because you were coming to judge, to judge sin, to judge people, to judge the world. And and because I saw you that way, I had escapist mentality that uh, I just wanted to suffer like our songs said, a few more weary days. I just wanted to get through this this hard time on this earth so that I I could one day enjoy abundant life on the other side. So after, after I've died in the, in the, the next life, I could be victorious and and so because of that, God, I know that you created in, or, or what had been created in this generation. To never think about the next generation. Because you were coming to judge this generation that I was in. And there was going to be this rapture and we were all going to leave. And so it really didn't matter to think about what we do now as far as how it will affect the the next generation and the generation after that, because that just won't be here. So why save money? And why just let her rip, tater chip, and just go? But you've made a a switch in my heart to think that, God, you, you are our Father, that you are love, that we can have, like the prayer Jesus spoke, as it is in heaven, it will be on earth. That we can establish your kingdom now. And for that to happen, and thinking about this next generation, and thinking about people that have become disillusioned by things that we've taught them in the church, Father, I I just pray that we would have an ear to hear and a heart that changes to think. There are things that we can do, just simple ways that we approach those that don't know about you 
And the things that we say are verbiage. Make these these simple changes. So that's our prayer. We we thank you so much for for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And Father, we are going to apply that this next week. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen.